In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. So make sure your Bibles are open at Luke uh, chapter 22, and you'll see on the screen that uh, I've called the sermon the trials, trials and crucifixion, trials and crucifixion. And uh, what I'm going to, I'm, I'm in danger here now if I'm not careful of confusing you because we're going to talk about two different trials of Jesus uh, that are handled uh, differently in Luke than any place else. As a matter of fact, he doesn't say anything about one of the trials, and we're going to have to look at the other Gospels just to see that because I think it, it fits into what we're going to say. But we need to have the context here. I always like to bring us up to date in the context. So uh, Jesus has been arrested. Judas has come and the kiss from hell and all of that. Uh, Peter has fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus gave to him, and he's denied Jesus three times, and he was absolutely devastated. We saw that uh, last week. Uh, the, uh, we have the uh, Sanhedrin uh, meeting and have a sort of a fake trial. That's the way I put it. It's an illegal trial uh, that happens. So what happens is, you remember Judas come in, uh, Malchus's ear got cut off, Jesus healed it, all of that kind of stuff. And we had about a couple of hundred at least uh, soldiers from Rome and probably another equal amount of uh, temple police were there and they bound Jesus, the disciples had run away and they bound Jesus and they took him and they kind of, you could say, just beat him up quite a bit. And, uh, and so they did all of that and uh, then uh, from that point on, there was a trial that was held while it was still dark. Now, the Passover was over that Jesus had. That was over, the meal. Then he went to Gethsemane, and uh, he did his prayer, not my will, but your will be done, that we talked about. And uh, then the kiss comes, and they take Jesus away uh, bound, and they kind of mess them up a little bit, and then they have a trial that it's still dark, even though we're way after midnight now, and uh, Jesus is really worn out because, you remember, an angel had to come to help him physically uh, during the time of prayer, and he sweat drops of blood. This is a very, very intense time that we're studying about, very intense time, and uh, then they had this uh, trial, and so it, look at verse 66. It says, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. Jesus was led before them. So the group, this group is the Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 men plus a president who was the high priest, in this case, Caiaphas. And as I said, Luke doesn't separate what happens 
as do the other Gospels. The Sanhedrin had already met at night, already, and would have come to the conclusion that Jesus needed to be executed. Then according to their rules, a full day had to pass before they had another meeting to confirm their previous decision. Uh, this was not only done first at night, at least in the dark, but, but a full day had not passed yet. So even the second trial is completely illegal. In other words, this is a setup to get Jesus out of the way before the large Passover crowds realize what is happening. So in Matthew chapter 26, we have a picture of the night session in Matthew's gospel. It starts at verse 62. It's on the screen or you can turn to it, Matthew 26. And uh, what is happening here is that a bunch of people, it was a setup, they prearranged it all, were yelling and hollering questions at Jesus, yelling and hollering and accusing him of this and of that, things that he didn't do. And then in verse 62, we read, then the high priest, that's Caiaphas, stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But then it says, but Jesus remained silent. I want you to really see that. This is amazing. I mean, the, the things that have happened, the emotional things, the physical things that have happened to him in the last hours of his life. And he's not only silent, completely silent, but it's clear, even though he looks terrible, it's clear that he's not, I, I like this word, I'm told it's a word, he's not discombobulated. He really is calm about things. And so the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And I can just see Jesus is looking right at him. You have said so. And then he says, but I say to all of you, he's talking to the whole Sanhedrin, he's looking at them, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see me, that's the Son of Man, that's Jesus' self-designation from the book of Daniel, from now on, you will see me sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Right away, they're thinking of Daniel's prophecy, and they're literally hearing him say that he is deity. Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, tore his clothes, and he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And then all, everybody wants to join in. All of these others want to be part of Caiaphas here, all of the other Sanhedrin, these religious leaders. So one after another, he's worthy of death. He needs to die. He's worthy of death. And then in verse 67, if you are the Messiah, that's the Christ, they said, tell us. And then what Jesus says next is brilliant. If I tell you, you'll not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. Now, to understand Jesus' answer, we must be reminded that for these religious leaders, Messiah was to be a political leader. 
Certainly not God. So Jesus can't say to them directly in this case that he is the Messiah because they would not understand his meaning of that. And if he were to say he was not the Messiah, that also would be misunderstood because Jesus was in fact the Messiah, deity incarnate, God becoming a man, the Christmas story. In the previous meeting where they concluded Jesus deserved death, He quoted Psalm 110. That's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And he quoted it in a way that clearly pictures himself as deity. So in 69, he says it again. But from now on, the Son of Man, from now on, I will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? Of course, they would ask that because they recognized that he just claimed he was And he replied, you say I am. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. I mean, clearly they knew what he was saying. They they needed to be able to accuse him of blasphemy because blasphemy merited death. And now they were satisfied he had done so. And then chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. Now, this would be early in the morning because Roman officials only met with the public between sunrise and noon, and only Pilate had the authority to exercise capital punishment. So let's move over to John's gospel to see uh, this, what happened here. In John chapter 18, verse 29, it reads this way. So Pilate came out to them, they've all come, and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? I mean, it's almost like he's mocking. He's looking at Jesus, who probably wasn't all that tall and looked just he was a mess. This man? And they said, if he were not a criminal... We would not have handed him over to you. Well, take him him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And then John, who often editorializes all through his gospel, writes, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. All through John's gospel, we have that idea. It's not his time yet. It's not his time yet. It's not his time yet. And as you read through John's gospel, you really get the idea that everything was on a schedule, that there was a plan. And in fact, there was. Now look at verse 2, chapter 23 of Luke. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man. Now, this is a specific phrase here, this man. It's, it's what you would say about somebody who was really guilty of something. So they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, but they were probably stronger when they said, and a king. Now, Jesus may have corrected some religious abuses 
such as cleansing the temple of greedy money changers in order to return it to a house of prayer. And uh, you'll all remember the incident we talked about. Uh, somebody's in the crowd at one time, and they yell out to Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was a trick question, because if he said, yes, you should, he has one group against him, and he says, no, you shouldn't, he's got a different group against him. And so what he does is he asks for a denarius, and somebody throws him a denarius, and he has it there, and he's looking at it, and he's saying, whose image is that on the denarius? Well, somebody had to say it. Well, it's Caesar's. And he threw it back, and he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God. Brilliant. Now, Jesus actually was claiming to be a king. He was, but not an earthly king. So now look at verse 3. And we have Pilate and Jesus talking here. So Pilate asked Jesus, it's a semi-private conversation. Are you king of the Jews? Now, he's in a sense mocking Jesus. He's looking at him. Are you king of the you? King of the Jews? And uh, certainly Jesus did not look anything like what Pilate would expect of a king. But Pilate will find it's not easy to get Jesus out of his life. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. Now, Luke is kind of putting this, he's making it smaller in, in text and everything. John's gospel, we have it, a little more of it. In John chapter 18, uh, the apostle John writes about it, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? I mean, this is incredible. Uh, Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. He hated the Jews. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And then Jesus says, my kingdom. So the kingdom has a king. So he is saying he's a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And now I can hear Pilate, you're a king then? And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate says, what is truth? Now, I have to stop there for a moment because that's one of the most important questions for humankind, mankind, whatever, however you want to say it, to answer. What is truth? Because if there is no truth, there's no possibility of human flourishing. And we can see it. That's what's happening in our country right now. That's what's happening all over the world right now. When there's no truth, no absolutes, when there's nothing that is always right and the right thing to do, and everybody knows what that is, you can't flourish. And we live in a time where truth doesn't exist anymore. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The scriptures that we study have within them the truth of God, inspired by God. But when we move away from the truth, 
then we're in a lot of trouble. And today we're in all kinds of trouble because when there's no truth, there's no hope. And when there's no hope, then society just falls apart. That's what's happening to us right now. It's happening in our country. And it's because of lack of truth. And when there is no truth, as I said, there's no hope, and it causes people to be hopeless and at the mercy of those who are just simply more powerful. It's very important that we who have the truth, we're Christians, we who have the truth live the truth. Oh, we don't need to be walking around. It's not wrong to do so, but with signs up about Jesus is the only way and stuff like that. But we need to live our lives based upon the truth of God so that where we work, where we play, where we study, uh, all of that type of thing, wherever we are, the people are going to be asking us for the reason for the hope that is within us. That's how important truth is. So this is one of the most important questions. Pilate is talking to the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he says, what is truth? Well, then, look at verse 4 now. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He's using their phrase. Important note. Pilate had the power to immediately dismiss the Sanhedrin and everyone else and release Jesus. But he didn't. You can actually see God's hand in all this, but you can also see the personality of Pilate. Pilate was a weak man ultimately, and he gave in to his weaknesses too often. You need to know yourself. You need to know what your weaknesses are. Don't give in to your weaknesses. In Pilate's case... His weaknesses led him to lose his position, and eventually he committed suicide. He could have just dismissed it at this point. Look at verse 5. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And verse 6, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Now, you see, here's the reason. Galilee, that's where all the troublemakers are. And Jesus is a Galilean, and that's where Herod is, and I don't like Herod. So he says, this is great. I can get rid of Jesus this way. So rather than use his authority to just stop it right now, uh, then he, uh, he, verse 7, when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod who was also in Jerusalem at that time because of the Passover. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Why? Well, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, uh, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. And so verse 9 says that Herod, so now you have to, in your mind, you have to realize we're over at Herod's place now. And he plied him with many, Jesus, with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Now, just to see how ridiculous this is, there's no court scene here. This isn't a court scene. It's just a, a, a joke about Jesus. In other words, what's happening is that over and over again, he's asking Jesus to perform some kind of a miracle. 
Yeah, I heard you walked on water. Can you show us that? How do you do that? Somebody says you raised the dead. How did, you, how did the people think that that happened? Or you got rid of these diseases, or you, you, you fed all the... I said, do something. He wanted him to perform. He wanted him to perform, almost like a clown in the court. But, but Jesus had nothing to say to Herod, nothing. Jesus had stayed away from Tiberias where Herod ruled. Herod was the one who jailed John the Baptist and in the most awful of circumstances had him beheaded. Jesus had no time for Herod and even told some religious leaders who warned him that Herod wanted to kill him at a previous event. Here's what he said to these religious leaders about Herod. Go tell that fox, that deceiver, that no good. I'll, now, this is brilliant. I'll drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, Jesus says, I must press on today and tomorrow, in spite of Herod, and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Even in his speech there, you're seeing the cross, and even the resurrection, it's all sort of pictured there, it's starting to come clearer and clearer as Jesus gets near the end of his life. And then in verse 10, we read, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. So while Herod is making a mockery of Jesus, they're trying to get his attention because they want to get Jesus killed. And it says, then Herod, in verse 11, and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus and dressed him in an elegant robe, probably one of Herod's robes, and they sent him back to Pilate. And verse 12, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. What irony. Wherever Jesus goes... You know, people's lives get changed. I mean, Jesus reconciled them. They became friends uh, over the fact that they both believed that Jesus was innocent. That's incredible. So now Pilate has Jesus back, and he again tries to get rid of his dilemma. So verse 13, he, he has a plan now. You can see it. Pilate called together the chief priests the rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, and the people. Now, why the people? Well, because he knew the people, they liked Jesus. He was popular among the people. So I can see what he's doing here. He thinks that if he can get the people on his side, then he can just let Jesus go. And then he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion the people, to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, now here's where he really goes wrong. I will punish him and then release him. What a weak man. He, could, he should have said, therefore, I'm releasing him. Everybody get out of here. He didn't. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. So not only has the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, said Jesus was innocent, 
But now the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas, has also declared him innocent. It becomes increasingly apparent that Jesus is in control as he has already predicted that he would go to the cross over and over again. Now, in your Bibles, uh, some of your Bible translations might have verse 17. It should say, and rightly so, that it wasn't in any of the manuscripts, so it's, it's not really there. Somebody has just uh, uh, put it in, but the idea is correct. It, Mark chapter 15, verse 6, Matthew tells us the same thing, writes, Now it was the custom at the festival, the Passover, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Well, this helps us understand what happens next. So since it was Passover custom for Pilate to release the people, someone that they would choose, Pilate purposely made the choice for them. Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas, the man who had started an insurrection and murdered, or the man who had loved and healed others named Jesus? But the crowd, verse 18, shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. And then it tells us in an aside here, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they, and I'm just going to say it, egged on by religious leaders, they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time, he spoke to them. Why? He must be very frustrated. What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, this is another terrible therefore, I will have him punished and then release him, thinking that they're going to go along with that. I mean, what a breakdown in justice. The judge is arguing with the people. Pilate was violating his own sense of justice and truth. Imagine you're in court for something, accused of something, uh, and uh, uh, something really terrible, like you went 11 miles over the limit and got caught, and uh, you've got a lawyer, and there's the judge, and there's a whole bunch of people behind you, uh, watching it, and in the middle of it, some people start saying, Judge, you need to find him guilty and charge him twice as much money, and then they're all arguing back and forth. I mean, you can't even imagine it is so silly. That's exactly what's happening here. And, and even punishing Jesus was wrong. He had not done anything deserving any kind of punishment. I mean, what a tragic irony. Jesus, the man of peace, rejected in favor of a revolutionary murderer. So now the, the people were being pushed to call for Jesus to be executed. Verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. I mean, Pilate Pilate had literally washed his hands in front of them and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and said, it's your responsibility. Now, some have tried to say that Pilate was a victim of circumstances, but that's absolutely not true. He had the authority to free this innocent man. 
Pilate had a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and he did the wrong thing only to promote his political career. And in verse 25, we read, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. I mean, this is incredible. Just incredible. Verse 26. As they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, this is amazing. Simon was from North Africa, where there was a Jewish community in a place called Cyrene. Uh, it was probably, we don't know this for sure, but it's very, very probably, he, he probably was, well, he's definitely visiting because it's the Passover, but it's very likely that being far away that he had moved uh, or come to the Passover, maybe the first time he had actually come to one. And here he is running into this big crowd of people and all these things start to happen and they put the cross in him and they make him carry it as he followed behind Jesus. Jesus' cross became the means of salvation for Simon, whose sons became prominent in the church. We know that from uh, their names were Rufus and Alexander, both Mark's gospel and the book of Romans uh, talk about them as being prominent in the church. And in fact... When you see this happening, you can't help but think about what Jesus said, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And here's a picture of it right on the road with, the, with Jesus in front of him carrying the cross. Now, I've really, th this really impacted me this week. I spent a lot of time thinking about this event. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about Simon talking to his uh, Rufus and Alexander uh, later on in his life, explaining to them exactly what happened. You know, the things, the things that happen to us that often seem insignificant or dangerous or uncomfortable might just turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to us may turn out to be something eternal. And I can just imagine uh, Simon talking to Alexander and Rufus and telling the story and said, yes, I went for a Passover service and I was there alone and I was, there was a big crowd of people and they were taking some people to be crucified on uh, a place called Golgotha and uh, there were all kinds of people around and I was sort of caught up in the crowd and trying to get out of it and all of a sudden a Roman soldier put a spear right up to my neck and said, you, come here. And there was this man that was, he had fallen down and his cross had fallen on top of him and, and he, was, he looked like he was completely exhausted. He was a terrible physical condition. And uh, they took the cross and they said, you carry this cross for him. And so I'm walking along. There's a big crowd of people. I'm carrying this cross. I'm not sure if they're going to kill me or something. And there were other people that were there that were also going to be crucified. Some women came and started sort of crying and talking to this man. And he's talking back to them. And then we get to this place called Golgotha. And they nail him to a cross. And they, they put him 
there and he's speaking from the cross. There was a big crowd there. I wanted to leave, but I was afraid that if I tried to run away, uh, I was afraid what might happen because and I, I was looking for a chance to get away, but I couldn't do it. And after all, the people on crosses take sometimes three or four days to die. I couldn't stay all that time. But at three o'clock, just like that, he said something and he was gone. He was dead. And the whole crowd changed, and I was able to get away. And later I heard that this man was Jesus and that he had risen from the dead. And I talked to some of his disciples. And that's why you're Christians now too, and you're part of the church, and all of this is going on. I mean, there's so many things can happen in our lives that are just inconvenient or dangerous or that we just wish would never have happened. But we must look at our lives if we're Christians we're instruments of God. He's using us. And sometimes he allows things into our lives that are just startling, but they're there for a reason that will transcend our lives. And there's a good picture of it. Well, let's go on. Verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me. Now, they probably wept and mourned for everybody going to the crosses. They were regulars. And he says, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, Jesus is about to prophesy here. Verse 29. For, I'll add some words, you'll understand. Verse 29. For a terrible time of judgment is coming. The time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, we've already studied it. Jesus was prophesying about a terrible future judgment that happened during the destruction of the temple in 70 AD under General Titus. It was so severe that many desired death rather than lying. And then, verse 30, Jesus says, he says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. That was a quote from the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8, in a similar type of situation. For if people do these things when the tree is green, simply meaning it still has life, what will happen when it is dry? Now, if God permitted his innocent son to be crucified unjustly, what will it be like for Israel when God pours his wrath out on their unrighteousness? That's the picture. If God did not spare his innocent son who died for our sins, what will it be like for those who are guilty and participate in crucifying Jesus by not accepting his sacrifice? It's a picture of judgment. Now look at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left. Now, the skull in Greek is pronounced cranian. That's her skulls. <laughs> in Aramaic, it's pronounced Golgotha. And in Latin, it's pronounced Calvaria. Calvaria. That's why we're called Calvary Chapel. It's a picture of the cross. So now they're driving the spikes into his hands and his feet. This is a terrible picture here. A terrible picture. Uh, I'm thankful that Luke didn't spend much time describing it in any detail, and I'm not going to do that, except there's 
sometimes we picture the cross mainly because of movies that show it. As it's a way up. Jesus is a way up here, and people are looking up at him. It's not like that at all. There were thousands of people crucified along the roadsides to warn people not to commit these crimes. And uh, the cross would have been put into a hole. His feet would have been two or three feet off the ground. He was a short man to begin with. And uh, if uh, Pastor Reggie, he's here, right? You're over there. If he were to stand up, he could probably have looked Jesus just about in the eyes. And that's all of the people are standing around, and there he is. And they're putting these nails into his hands, and now he's up on that cross. And I can't help but think of the Sermon on the Mount. I spent so much time memorizing that sermon. It's one of the most powerful sermons ever preached by anybody, but it was preached by Jesus. And in that sermon, he says one point, bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. And that's exactly what happens next. On the cross, verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. This word for forgive means just wipe out all that they're doing. Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He's praying in the same way that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you can take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so even, even on the cross, he has no bitterness, no anger. He's saying to the Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And you wouldn't believe in the commentaries. There's all kinds of things. Well, he was only talking about the people driving the nails in or about this group or that. No, he was talking about us. And then besides that, uh, they gambled for his clothes. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. And that's the fulfillment of Psalm 22 Verse 18, written hundreds of years before anybody even thought about the idea of crucifixion. If you read Psalm 22, you can see the crucifixion right there. And then in verse 35, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. How disgusting. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And in verse 38, it says, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. This was Pilate's retaliation against the Jews. He knew that the sign would really antagonize them. He knew they would be upset, but they had forced him to violate his conscience. You could call the sign Pilate's revenge against the Jews. The apostle John tells us some came to him and said, write, this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now look at verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. The word is the word for blasphemy. So you can read it. One of the criminals who hung there blasphemed him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing Wrong. Another witness to the innocence of Jesus. 
When Judas took the money back, he said Jesus was innocent. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Herod found no fault in him. Pilate's wife even said a written message, says, writing, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. And now one final word from the criminal beside him. This man has done nothing wrong. That was the word, by the way. This man has done nothing wrong. And next week, we'll see the same from the centurion at the cross. Now, last week, I talked about what I think is the best gospel verse of all, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We've just seen it all pictured here, all pictured. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the righteous one was made unrighteous so that us unrighteous ones can become righteous in God's sight. Jesus did not die for himself, but for you and for me. And verse 42, then he said, the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. In in the New Testament, paradise came to mean the final place of the righteous. Jesus was saying today, we'll be together. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately, not some far off time in the future. I mean, I don't think it would be possible to think of anything much worse than crucifixion. Without all, you've probably heard it described and the horror of it and the days it takes to die and you suffocate to death. Uh, Even knowing when this criminal went to that cross, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He had seen it many times. And so I think it would be fair to say it was the worst thing that he could have ever imagined happening in his whole life. And, uh, but in fact, it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he met Jesus and he now lives in eternity and we're going to be able to talk to him one day. That's amazing. So the next time that things aren't going right in your life and you're a child of God, know that he'll never put us, we talked about this last week at the end, he'll never put us any, through anything uh, that we can't handle. And he'll be with us through it. Sometime he'll get rid of it for us, all kinds of things, but he'll always be with us. As I read last week, he'll never let us down. We never have anything to ultimately worry about. And so we look at this man on the cross who's done no, he can do, he's done no good works. He hasn't been baptized, uh, but he knew he had broken the law and needed a savior. So you look at just those two men, and we'll end with this. Both had blasphemed God. You find that out from the other Gospels. Both were now physically dying, and both were horribly guilty of their sins. Both of them finally died. One goes to hell and the other to paradise. Now, even this morning, there could be some here who have not yet received the gift of life. It really is up to us. Oh, I understand how God's sovereignty, I understand his election, I understand all that. But the Bible says, to as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, John chapter 1. 
And uh, it says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's nobody within the sound of my voice that can't be saved. Whether you're online, whether you're here, if you'll call on the Lord, you can be saved. And if you're here and you're not saved, I love that word, saved. You're not saved. Then you're living a hopeless life because you have a future and it's horrible. And so you need to be saved. And it's very straightforward. It's, 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 it's simple, really. You simply have to admit you're a sinner, meaning that you're not perfect, that you uh, deserve hell and that uh, you want heaven. And so you just say, Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross for me. Thanks for rising from the dead. Please come into my life and save me. And every time he will. And you'll know it. And so don't delay. Don't think that you have tomorrow. You have no idea if you have even this afternoon. None of us do. None of us do. And the greatest life to live is the Christian life, especially as you age and get older. I'm more excited about the future than I've ever been in many ways because I know there's a future. It's not a hope so. It's I know there's hope and there's a future and there's truth and I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. So there's no reason for me not to live until I die. And only a Christian can truly live until they die. And people that aren't Christians, often many of them, especially as they age, are not living anymore. They're breathing, they're eating, they're walking around, but they're not living. They're dying. We're in the land of the dying, going to the land of the living. And all you have to do is receive Jesus. And I hope you'll do that. Let me pray for you. Father, I just pray right now that if there's anybody among us who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you will save that person and that they will call out to you and that they will find out for the first time what it really means to be a Christian. And I also pray, Father, that uh, they will immediately take steps to become part of our church or this church, but the church. And Father, uh, uh, if you're watching online or you even look here, you can see my phone number always at the end of the service. You can text me or phone me anytime, and I'll tell you how to take the next step. And if you're here and you want to know right now, then just grab me before you leave uh, or somebody you know that really is a Christian, but don't let this day go by. And then for the rest of us, we need to be the most thankful, hope-filled, truth-followers in the world so that many will ask us about the hope that is within us and then we need to be prepared to give them an answer for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 